It's the season of Advent in the traditional church calendar, and uh, technically this is the second Sunday in Advent, but uh, my Peruvians interrupted my sermon series, and so I pushed the end of this last sermon series to the first Sunday in Advent. So here we go. All right, we're good. We can we can roll with that. Um, and so Advent is all about anticipation. It's about the anticipation of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I want us to sort of enter into that spirit today. And Advent brings with it, traditionally, a few themes. Uh, one of those themes is the theme of hope, which I thought was an appropriate place for us to begin uh, this week. And besides, I think hope is the theme for the second week of Advent, but... I'm not really a liturgical guy, so if you grew up Catholic or Episcopalian, you probably already know the answer to that question, but uh, here we are, and so, the idea of hope and anticipation, what does that mean? What does that look like for us, and how does it impact who we are and how we live? So, the best place to start, I think, is in the book of Isaiah, There are lots of places we could start. One of my favorite places to start is in the book of Isaiah. This guy just still to this day amazes me that he had, that God gave him the foresight and the vision to see the things that he saw in the, in the context in which he was living. And just to give you a little bit of that context, The whole world, it seems, is falling apart around Isaiah. Uh, A few hundred years before uh, he was born and and taught, uh, Israel had had a civil war. And Jerusalem was in a little state called Judah. And the rest of Israel had broken off from the state of Judah. So the temple and the king's throne, if you will, were in Jerusalem in the state of Judah And the rest of Israel had said, we we want nothing to do with you. We want to have our own king. We don't want to have the king on the throne of Judah. And off they went and into a a really tumultuous and difficult, uh, roughly 400 year span, 350 years or something like that. And, uh, And then they get taken over by a foreign power. Uh, They get they lose a war. They get defeated, and all their intellectuals are carried off. All their kings are either executed or carried away. And there is this little bitty postage stamp of a country that was the state of Judah, where Jerusalem sits, that now every major army in the region is is sort of stroking their metaphorical beards and thinking, you know, I bet they got some gold in that city. And so it doesn't look like Israel will be there for very long when Isaiah is preaching. And Isaiah understands this. He gets the political implications of what's going on around him. And yet he makes these amazingly bold statements about the restoration of the throne of David. At at a time in history where 
the existence of the throne of David is more uh, at risk than at any other time previous. And so he really, if, if, I think if, if you knew what was going on and you were hearing Isaiah's prophecies as he was giving them, you might have laughed. You might have said, yeah, right. Sure, buddy. Uh, good luck with that. Let me know how that works out for you. And so we're going to read one of those this morning. This is, this is one of the prophecies of the coming Messiah. And I just want you to understand it is spoken into a context of great uncertainty. A context of looming destruction. And so hear these words in, with that sort of understanding. And they, I hope they will... Uh, sort of leap off the page into your heart. From the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Isaiah, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then just to, so, this prophecy is the expression of hope in the midst of utter despair. These words were, were spoken, <laughs> the, the, like the little phrase that, that the kingdom will be multiplied were spoken at a time where everything was was at risk. Everything was being undermined. Everything was threatened. Everything was falling apart. And I want to just jump for the sake of... I'm going to come back to this passage later in the, in the message. But I want to just read to you one verse out of the New Testament that takes up this idea of hope. And we're going to read that real quick. And then we're going to go into some of the meaning in these words from Isaiah. 
So from Hebrews chapter 6, just verses 19 and 20, it says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I realize that's a little cryptic. I'll try to explain that in a little while. All right. What are the elements of a great gift? Surprise. And it can't just be surprise, right? There's another mark you have to hit. What is that? Thoughtfulness. Like when I, when I open that gift, I want to feel like the person who gave it to me knows me, right? And I wish that, I wish that Tiffany was here this morning. Um, Tiffany Rumbo is a member of our church and Tiffany, Tiffany understands me. Right, so when it's my birthday, uh, Tiffany's one of my wife's best friends, and Tiffany will give me, uh, always gives me a cigar, and usually it's it's accompanied by like a beer T-shirt or something like that, All right? Which I have several of, and Oscar, you probably have the same problem, um, and I always just I always just smile, and I feel known. It's like oh, she gets me. Uh, my, my loving, wonderful, incredible wife, who I'm not disrespecting by saying this, often will try to give me something different that's, you know, outside the realm of normal. And, and upon several occasions, my children will comment to her, Mom, Tiffany kicked your rear on Dad's birthday present. You know, and it's just, it's just funny. And, and my wife does know me, and she can she can nail it. She's just bored with, you know, like yeah. So okay, we're good. Did I did I was Kathy adequately protected there? She has other best friends in the room. What? Yes, exactly, exactly. She's thinking of me as I should be. <laughs> um, you know, how many beer T-shirts does a pastor really need? I don't know. Uh, so, okay. So there, there are really maybe two critical components to a great gift. That it reaches the person that, to whom it's given, and that there's some element of surprise. Like, oh, wow, that's great. And, and so, to my wife's credit, she, she's, you know, often reaching for the surprise element. That's okay. Not a bad thing. One of the important components of a good gift. Isaiah foretells a gift that will be given to humanity that that actually does both of these things. It, It reaches the target of the person or persons to whom it is given. And it is a, it is a surprise of, well, biblical proportions. Uh, this is, Really quite astonishing language, if you think about it, that, well, that the name of this baby, one of his names could be Everlasting Father, that's 
almost blasphemous for a prophet to suggest that a human baby could be called by a name reserved only for God. So, yeah, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So, surprise is a, is a central component of a gift. I want to explore that in this passage a little bit. Uh, one of the first things we see about hope in these words is that hope emerges in surprising conditions. And we, we talked about that a little bit at the, in the introduction, but just um, how unexpected this gift would be. Hope arrives into unexpected places. This passage mentions Galilee. Um, at the time this was written, Galilee was, was uh, farmland for a foreign empire. Like the, the few Jewish people who were left there were all working for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, well, probably by this time, I don't know, one of those guys. They were working for a foreign king uh, in Babylon, growing his crops for his armies. And so to suggest that something significant would come out of this irrelevant territory is just surprising. It's flat out surprising. So, you know, that would be like some, like an elder coming from South Dakota or something. Yeah. Weird. Um, it'd be weirder if it was North Dakota, because like that would be one of the five people who live there would have to move away. But, uh, I digress. So, we see here that hope comes into unexpected places. And in this context, it's Galilee. In your life, it could be anything. It could be at a time you least expect hope to emerge. When you are devastated, when you are alone and forsaken, God shows up. He arrives in times where we feel forgotten or devastated. Like all is lost. And again, just to prophesy that, that, you know, one of the, one of the people in the New Testament who hears about Jesus and that he's, he grew up in Galilee literally says, can anything good come from there? Can anything good come from Galilee? Are you kidding me? This is a joke. And oftentimes God's Work, God's word, God's action in our lives is almost laughable in human terms. We, we just don't see it coming. And, and so hope moves into unexpected places and it moves in unlikely times. As we have said, this was spoke, these words were spoken originally in a time of massive decline and they were fulfilled in a time of massive discouragement. By the time Jesus comes around, uh, the, the little city-state of Judah had been, not city-state, but little podunk country of Judah had been run over uh, by another empire. Everything, the temple had been destroyed. Uh, it then gets rebuilt, uh, mostly by 
well, two, two different phases of reconstruction of the temple. And in the time of Jesus, they are occupied by a Roman army. So this sacred temple in the middle of Jerusalem has a Roman military tower built onto the corner of the temple grounds so that the Roman authorities can look down into this sacred space and observe what's happening. Uh, This might be a surprise to you, but totalitarian regimes are terrified of freedom of assembly. They don't like people getting together in large groups. And so the governor builds a tower so he can watch what's going on in the temple courts. The biggest problem with this is you may recall among the Ten Commandments is one about having no graven images. Well, hanging above the temple grounds on the side of this tower was a giant Roman eagle, a sculpture. Oops. That was clearly put there to say, hey, we're in charge. And your little joke of a god can't stop us. Well, they were wrong, but... We digress. In the time where essentially everything Jewish was looking like a joke, Jesus is born. When all hope is effectively lost. And you have probably been there in your own life at a point where it just feels like hope is gone. And God says, I haven't given up. I'm still here. And this is one of the components of what he's doing with Christmas in its original context. He's reminding us that hope emerges in surprising conditions. When everything is falling apart and when all seems lost. He also tells us that hope exists in surprising people. There's, there are two sides to this. One is, as we said earlier, this, this prophecy of Isaiah that, that one of the names of this little baby would be everlasting father, God almighty, everlasting father. Those two titles of the four given here are the most shocking. They're the most, uh, bewildering to the reader, to the original audience of these words. How could this possibly be. And may I just add, this is still confounding to theologians today. Like, to understand fully how God was fully God and fully human at the same time is actually incomprehensible. We, we, we can know that it is true, but we don't fully understand how it was true. Or it is true, I should say. So, This is a mind-blowing revelation that Isaiah gives here to those who might be listening. It's a surprising birth that God himself becomes a mortal human and that a human baby becomes an eternal king. These people had seen Kings and kingdoms come and go. And by the time Jesus is born, the idea of a Davidic lineage on the throne in Jerusalem had been disappeared for over 500 some odd years. Uh, 
it was gone. There was no... Uh, I mean, this, this literally could have been a joke. It, what, give me a comparison. I mean, this would be like saying the Roman Empire is coming back. You know, no, no, I don't think that one's gone. I think we're safe there. Um, but this is spoken, of course, at the, at the height of the Roman Empire when no one could believe that the Roman Empire would one day be gone. So, surprising person in which hope lives, the person of Christ. Um, not what anybody other than perhaps Isaiah really saw coming. And then there's the other side of that human place where hope exists, the people, and that's us. We are unlikely repositories for this hope. That it would come to us. Why? I don't deserve it. I didn't, I didn't work for it. I, I didn't even really ask for it. God just came to us uh, without our prodding and he showed up when we needed him the most. This makes us surprising recipients of this hope, a people in despair that God wants to remind that he still cares about. That when we find ourselves in these places where life is devastated, where we are despairing of our very existence, God says, I care. I'm here. I love you. I'm not finished. So let's, let's go. I have work for you. I have hope for you. And we're reminded of this at Christmas. When this, we can't overplay this, I don't think, that, that the God of the universe who created all of this is born and laid in a feed trough with donkey spit all over it. He's laid in a feed trough at the point of his birth. Incredibly unlikely place, person, in whom hope will reside. And he brings that hope to incredibly unlikely recipients, those being us. We don't deserve it. We, we don't even realize we need it sometimes. And God comes when we need him the most and says, I'm here. And so we're reminded that hope emerges amidst surprising conditions and that it exists in surprising people. And we see in these passages that hope works in surprising ways. I'm going to turn most of our attention at this point to the passage in Hebrews. And I will just say, I, I realize I, we, we didn't go through every part of that passage in Isaiah. That's going to be our theme or thematic passage for the whole series. So we will, in later passages, pull out themes of joy and peace and fulfillment, etc. And light. We'll, do, we'll play with that on Christmas Eve. And, uh, okay. Hope works in surprising ways. This passage in Hebrews reminds us that hope grounds us spiritually. It's like an anchor for our soul. It 
holds us tight in difficult times. When the seas are raging, we have a way to know we're still connected. We're not adrift. And so, one of the reasons that I I say this is surprising is just from personal uh, perspective. Uh, This may be weird for you to hear your pastor say this, but my native state, my native who I am and my heart is not spiritually grounded. I am natively restless. And I think, I think we all are to a certain extent. And the importance of the gift of Christ is it gives us this anchor, this grounding, this solid fixed point to which we are now attached to keep us from drifting off into whatever we might otherwise pursue to find fulfillment. And so, hope works in surprising ways. I am always surprised when I, when I sort of wake up spiritually to discover that I am, in fact, grounded when I don't always feel that way. And so we have this um, non-native invasion of hope into our lives, and it, it attaches us to something beyond ourselves. It gives us something sure in the midst of our own uncertainty. When life is swirling around, we have something that is fixed. It gives us something personal amidst our sense of isolation. I'll, I'll try to unpack that a little bit. You, you saw in that Hebrews passage that he goes behind some curtain and, you know, and you're going, huh, what? And Melchizedek and what's that all about? Um, what's going on? And I'll just try to unpack that for you a little bit. But we have as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. There, he's, the author is referring to the temple in the center of Jerusalem. And there's a, a room in the center of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And inside this room, there's a curtain. And the curtain is thick. It's probably at least as thick as this Bible. And it's basically velvet, and it's, it's heavy. And at the time Christ died on the cross, the Bible tells us there was an earthquake, and it shook the temple, and the, the, the curtain actually was torn open at the time of Christ's death. And that tells us something very significant. That little room inside, behind the curtain, there was only one person who could go in there, and that was only on one day of the year. And there's the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And the high priest would dress a certain way, and he would go in with a little, uh, a little wand with freshly sacrificed blood. And he would sort of duck into this dark room, 
and he would sprinkle the blood in the four directions that he was told to sprinkle it. And they always tied a rope around his waist so that if he happened to have a heart attack while he was in there, they could drag him out so that no one else ever went into this sacred space. So there's this incredible amount of ritual that went into the preparation for this day and this one person who would go in and offer the, the atonement for the sins of God's people in this inner room. And what this author is saying is that Jesus has done away with all of that necessity, all of that preparation, all of that need to perform all of these rituals correctly were taken away on the cross. Your sins are forgiven. I cannot emphasize enough the the extent to which first century people who heard this message were relieved by the simplicity of the gospel. Their religious, if you will, requirements were drastically reduced to really nothing. Uh, To be a Jew in good standing required following burdensome numbers of laws and rules to make sure you didn't step over the line. And Jesus takes it all away. This is hope realized. This is relief for the soul. This is the coming of freedom and joy and hope eternal. And then this author makes this weird comment that Jesus is a priest in the order of this funny named guy, Melchizedek. And uh, I'll just talk about that for a second. So this hope, it grounds us spiritually and it atones for our sin Not through the normal priesthood. Christ has fulfilled the obligations of the Jewish law. And he lays that down for us. So we're free from it. And he's referred to as a priest in the order of of Melchizedek. who's an Old Testament guy that runs into Abraham. Right? And uh, he, he is called a priest of God Most High. One problem... Every other priest of God Most High in the Old Testament was descended from a guy named Aaron. Jesus was descended from a guy named Judah. He was from a different tribe of Israel. He was not genetically qualified to be a priest. He broke the rule and he broke the mold. And so this author has to remind the Jewish readers, hey, there was one other priest in the Old Testament who was priest of the God Most High, who wasn't descended from Aaron. And now we have the fulfillment of, if if you look at Melchizedek's life as a prophecy, in Jesus you have the fulfillment of a priest who performs the final eternal act of atonement on behalf of God's people who was not descended from Aaron. And so you have this sort of surprising fulfillment of this prophecy. And our sins are atoned for through the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, There's another weird phrase in the New Testament that, that basically calls all of us priests. We are a kingdom of priests. That's actually in the Old Testament too. 
Imagine that. Why do I always look at you? Um, in Christ, not only is he the final priest who makes the final sacrifice for atonement, but he calls us all into this ministry of the priesthood to be those who express God's grace to others, who communicate his forgiveness and his grace. His spirit lives in each one of us. And so we are a kingdom of priests, every one of us. This is really important in in our way of thinking. I, and this will not be a surprise to you, but I am not any more spiritual than you are. I am no more qualified than you are. I am equal with you in Christ. We are in the same boat. We need him just as much one as the other. Will you pray with me as we contemplate this gift today? God, our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. The surprising ways in which you fulfill your word in our lives. And we thank you that when we are facing uncertainty or devastation or despair, that you remind us that there is hope, that you still love and you still care and you still move in the midst of our pain. Father, lift our heads to see the light of your love through your son, Jesus Christ. And may we live in the hope of his grace and love forever. In his name we pray, amen.